morning, good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, on this uh, rotating planetary sphere which we call home, the home to the human species. Now, you know from other shows that I think we may have relatives that are not here, that are somewhere out there. In fact, we're going to kind of put some things in context tonight. Before we get to my main guest, my only guest this evening, to talk about another terrestrial mystery of who are we really and how old are we on planet Earth, uh, a couple of news highlights you're going to want to go to, of course, our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. That's our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on tonight's banner relating to the Macintosh Stone and Ron uh, Rademacher, and that will take you to the guest page for um, February 16th, Sunday night, and uh, click on Fast Links right below the banner there. 30 years ago Friday, on, thank, on, uh, on, on Valentine's Day, 30 years ago, commands were sent from JPL, from the uh, Deep Space Network, the DSN, to the Voyager spacecraft, which was far beyond, at that point, the most distant known planet, because Pluto was then a planet. It was only demoted later. Commands were sent to the Voyager spacecraft to turn around, and at the behest of Carl Sagan, my friend and my colleague, who, of course, is no longer with us, who was very persistent in these um, ideas and had been trying for years to get the Voyager team to do this. They finally acquiesced because they were basically going to turn off the cameras on the Voyager spacecraft to save power. About 30 minutes before they terminated the camera system, they turned the spacecraft around and took a series of, of images in a series of shots, red, green, blue, red, green, blue, across the entire solar system as seen from Voyager's perspective, which was well above the plane of the planets orbiting the sun. So if you can imagine, in fact, if you go to that link, you'll see a kind of a diagram showing this geometry. Um, they photographed everything from, I think, Mercury out to uh, Pluto in this swath of pictures. Then they knitted them together as a series of rectangles or squares kind of covering the ecliptic plane as seen at that high angle. And this story is from uh, one of the participants in that plan, that uh, protocol, that that uh, procedure of taking pictures of the whole solar system for the first spacecraft to carry a camera that was able to do that from significantly outside the inner solar system. And that occurred 30 years ago um, this Weekend, defined kind of loosely, technically back on the 14th on Friday. What's interesting is that Candace Hansen, who was the planetary scientist who actually oversaw this Voyager project, um, now has a series of the prints, the actual photographic prints that JPL posted in the JPL press room in, in Von Karman auditorium where I've been many, 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 many times because the Voyager guys put up this 
you kind of um, bulletin board tacked onto this board all these eight by ten glossies showing the whole solar system as a montage as part of this project 30 years ago. And then, of course, that's what happened with prints. You know, eventually they get kind of frayed around the edges and they were taken down. And instead of being thrown away, apparently they were given to Candace Hansen to store. Because, um, of course, the real archive is electronic and digital in the uh, cloud and at JPL's archives and the Planetary Society archives and all kinds of NASA archives all over the world. We've got copies of this, uh, these, these, these photographs. The most interesting, of course, for us humans sitting on planet Earth, is that one of those photographs showed this tiny little blue dot called technically the pale blue dot, which was a picture of Earth from billions of miles away and above the plane of the solar system, looking back from Voyager's position toward the sun, captured in a kind of a rainbow because there was scattering of light in the camera because you're looking toward the sun, of course. And it happened to lie just behind one of these light streaks, which you can see in that picture uh, that's reproduced at the beginning of this, uh, this article. A very important moment because I was, I believe, 30 years ago at JPL when this picture was taken. And there was a really big deal because... Sagan had tried for years to get NASA to do this, and like they resisted him on taking the first picture of Phobos during the Mariner 9 mission. For years, they resisted him in taking a montage of the solar system from Voyager in terms of this picture. I mean, what's wrong with these people? Don't they get the historicity of what they're doing? Or... Is this been a kind of a low-grade effort, like a low-grade fever, to suppress the general public's interest in spaceflight in general and in what they're doing? Because they really don't want us grubby-fingered, you know, democratists involved in finding out what they've really found. You can build all the conspiracy theories you want around that statement, so we will move on. Also this week… Um, on, I think, Thursday or Friday, there was an announcement coming out of the uh, uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting held in Seattle every year, the AAAS, which has something like 40 or 50,000 scientists involved, most of the scientists certainly in the United States, if not in the world, that are you know, at the cutting edge of research or participants in the association. They held a meeting, and at the meeting, uh, Alan Stern and company, representing the New Horizons mission, was in attendance and gave a presentation. So item number four is all about what they, what they said. The most interesting news coming out of the meeting was not um, any new news on the flyby of Ultima Thule, which is, remember, the little tiny 20-mile or so uh, weirdly shaped rock, in quotes, that the mission scientists were able to find for New Horizons to fly past, you know, a year or two after it flew past Pluto. The news coming out was that they decided for some reason to change the name. Ultima Thule 
this bizarre-shaped double-lobed object. You can actually see in the photo um, a computer rendering of the geometry of these two lobes stuck together that form the uh, uh, matrix of this object, so-called Kuiper Belt object, because it's you know a billion or so miles beyond Pluto. They changed the name from Ultima Thule to Arakoth. A-R-R-O-K-O-T-H, which has a very interesting history all in, in and of itself. It's a uh, Powhatan Algonquin Indian name, meaning uh, sky. And the only question I have is, why did Alan Stern agree to a name change? Well, if you read some of the articles around this announcement last week from the New Horizons team, it seems that there was a lot of pushback uh, in the Twitterverse and in social media from calling this little thing Ultima Thule because, <clears throat> get this, the Nazis called their purported Aryan homeland Ultima Thule, and NASA wants to stay, you know, five light years away from any Nazis. Notwithstanding the fact that we know that a lot of Nazis went to work for NASA. And some of them led the Apollo program. Some of them were in charge of uh, the Cape facilities like Kurt Debus, who was the uh, director of Cape Canaveral. Um, I mean, NASA's history is filled with Nazis. So why should they be squeamish about Ultima Thule? Well, remember what Ultima Thule represents. It represents the Aryan homeland. If you take a close look at the data, that came out of the AAAS meeting on Ultima Thule slash Arakoth, they're making some very interesting claims, really extraordinary claims, based on observations of this little object, which really don't pass the smell test. And that's a long discussion. We're not going to get into that tonight, but we're, we're going to have some more planetary shows coming up. We've got uh, some surprises for you. Some major surprises having to do with my original investigation out of SRI, the independent Mars investigation. We have a leaker from deep inside the bowels of the U.S. government who has something interesting to say about the intelligence agency's perspective on our early work vis-a-vis -vis Mars. Well, you know this is part of a continuum. We're looking at off-planet origins for modern humans. I know that sounds heretical. But that's where the data's been leading, looking at Mars very close up in one case, and at this little object, Ultima Thule slash Arakoth, in another case. Because in truth, when you look at the geometry that the early released images of Arakoth showed us that now have been all covered up in the latest releases, the geometry is almost all gone. They've had over a year now to kind of hone the computer algorithms and get rid of that offending geometry. But um, in our original shows, which had radio with pictures examples, there is stunning three-dimensional geometry on this object. And in fact, what's really weird is that in referencing the idea of this thing is two lobes that came together somehow so gently for all their mass that it didn't even produce any cracks that you can see on the New Horizons imagery. As you'd imagine, if two solid objects came together and went smash, you'd get 
cracks. Well, this approach was so gentle that one of the scientists, again, in a very Dickinsonian fashion, and for those of you who are new, I'm referencing Emily Dickinson and her famous quote, you know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. He says, this scientist says, I think his name is McKinnon. He says, think of the gentle docking of two spacecraft. He really said that. My gosh, he must be a fan of Emily as well. Okay, item number five. Remember, coming up on Tuesday morning in the pre-dawn of the 18th of February, you're going to see the moon occult Mars. And it's pretty spectacular. If you've never seen one, go out there with your Mark One eyeballs and just take a look. If you're on the East Coast, it'll occur in daylight. If you're on the far West Coast, you won't see the immersion, meaning the moon overtake Mars, but you will see the immersion when Mars moves out from behind the moon. And in the Midwest, including here in the great American Southwest, where I am, you'll be able to see both the immersion, meaning when the moon covers Mars, and the immersion when Mars comes out from back of the moon. And it's really spectacular. If you can see it with binoculars, it's even better. If you've got a decent telescope, it's super cool. And it's really important because you're seeing there a metaphor of why this administration, Donald Trump, wants to get to the moon by 2024 as a stepping stone to going to Mars. And of course, we know, because we've seen the data, what's awaiting us on both celestial objects, as do the Russians and the Chinese and the Japanese and the Indians and everybody who's suddenly heading pell-mell to put bases on the moon, as I talked about last night. Of course, the larger context of all this is, who are we? Who are human beings? How long have we been here? What's our real, extraordinarily variegated and complicated and suppressed history. And that takes us to my guest tonight, who is uh, Ron Rademacher. He lives in Michigan. He's a working author with six books about travel on the back roads of Michigan to his credit. He's been described as an explorer, a writer, a storyteller, and a man who holds the record for getting lost the most times on the back roads of Michigan. Writing and storytelling is Ron's third career. He's a generalist. Ron spent 16 years, get this, in the fashion industry, involved in design, manufacturing, marketing of women's shoes, handbags, and other accessories. we got to ask him about that. This work took him to all but four states in the U.S. and to several countries in Europe and the Orient. Then came, get this, 10 years of traveling the arts and crafts fair circuit throughout Michigan, creating and marketing rustic log and twig furniture. And from those travels came the idea for his series, Michigan Back Roads. So if you want to find out what Ron's been up to and all the curious out of the way places that Robin and I used to love to go visit and see because it was off the beaten path, you go to www.michiganbackroads.com. That's uh, Ron's website, which, by the way, now has a prominent uh, link to the story of the Macintosh Stone, as well as some other uh, goodies there. Um, Ron's other gateway websites are also listed and linked. 
and they've been visited something like almost 180,000 times in the last year alone. Ron writes something called the Travel in Michigan Newsletter, which is published by email on the first of the month. He can be heard also on 25 radio stations across Michigan each week on, among others, the Steve Gruber Show. And he's with us tonight to talk about this remarkable, I mean, really incredible object, which has so much to tell. A tale by any other name is an extraordinary mystery. And so without further ado, Ron, welcome to the other side. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I am doing well, and I want to talk about how the heck with a guy with that variegated background wound up in, shall we say, unusual anomalous archaeology. Let's, let, let, let's start when you were a kid. What, what was your childhood like, and where did you grow up? Well, I grew up on a farm in DeWitt, Michigan, which is right in the middle of the uh, of the of the mitten, the, right in the middle of the state. And uh, as farmers, we spent an awful lot of time in the fields and in the woods. And almost from the, my earliest memory, we were out there picking up arrowheads and ah. axe heads and fossils and those kinds of things. I mean, well, at the time that I was ten years old, I had an entire room in the barn filled with artifacts that we'd picked up from uh, off the ground. So I was always fascinated by these things. So when did you, I mean, you really have had a bizarre career. How did you wind up getting into the design of women's you know, accessories? That seems a far cry from a kid. I mean, I grew up on a, you know, in the country in Maryland and I would wander around and I didn't collect arrowheads. I collected live things like snakes oh. and birds and, Raised them in my mom's kitchen because we had a restaurant, so they used the restaurant kitchen for meals. So I had my own kitchen to do lab work in, and I got into the whole biology side. But how did you go from arrowheads to uh, uh, you know Fabergé? Well, you know, most uh, as we go through my career this evening, you're going to find almost everything that's happened in my life was not planned. They were just it was serendipitous things that would happen, and I would just go that way. Uh, and I was working, I'd gotten out of the army. I was going to school, going to college, and I was working, believe it or not, in a shoe store part-time. A guy walked in, got yakking with me, and he said, you know, you'd make a good traveling salesman, and uh, maybe we should get you involved with what's going on with our wholesale. I said, uh, what's that? He said, you'll make more money. So I said, fine, I'm in. And that's hmm. how it happened. It was really nothing that I attempted to do. They uh, sent me to uh, be tested. And for the next 16 years, I traveled all over the United States and a good part of Europe and the Orient, working with factories, working with department stores, and creating uh, uh, shoes and bags for beautiful women. I mean, what's better than that, working with beautiful models all the time? I was going to say, that sounds like such a <laughs> hardship post. Uh, <laughs> so had you, had you exemplified any artistic side when you were growing up? The only thing uh, that I... Uh, that I exhibited that could be considered artistic, I guess, uh, was I always was a writer. I, was, I always won all the, the creative writing competitions. And I really enjoyed uh, public speaking class. I had, a, I had a knack for speaking in front of cloud, uh, crowds. So those are the only two things. I can't draw. I can't carve. I cannot play music. I don't have any of that stuff. But when it comes to words, uh, I, that's where my strength lies. Hmm. Well, the obvious question I wanted to ask when I was reading this was, 
how would you give up working with beautiful women to wind up, you know, doing arts and crafts and traveling a circuit around Michigan? Well, just bad luck all around. What do you think? I was I mean, gonna... Yeah, I, I, I knew just, there had to be a story there somewhere. So, well, actually, what it was, and I, you know, I've always had the, I'm a, the kind of person who, when I get fixated on an idea, I just go after it. And I'd been, uh, I was still traveling, and I had a reason to come back to Michigan. And I got back here, and I was looking, uh, staring down both barrels of another flight to Taiwan, and I did not want to go. I didn't want to fly anymore. I was just tired of. 17 years of constantly traveling. Oh my God. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I just stopped and I said, I'm going to find something else to do. And so, you know, I'd always, I had become fascinated with rustic furniture, having grown up on a farm and all that. And I began to study, uh, how you did it and how you managed wood. I invented a kiln that could be worked on a small scale and just started building furniture and people driving by where I was working would stop and say, well, how much is that? How much is that? And uh, so, you know, I thought, hey, got something here. And because of that, then I ended up traveling all over Michigan with this big old truck. In fact, my booth was not a tent. I built a full-size log and twig gazebo to use as a display booth Ah. that I could dismantle and and build at each uh, festival. And it was great fun. Well, I know I grew up in New England, and I know there's a lot of rustic furniture made. And then the Amish, of course, you know, make stuff in Pennsylvania. But I'd never really heard of, you know, twig furniture coming out of Michigan. Well, what we have here is a vast – we have a lot of wetlands in Michigan. We have a lot of swamps, a lot of lakes, a lot of rivers. And along those – in those areas grows a plant called pussy willow. You know, you give them to your – Oh, yes, yes. Know them well. Yeah. Well, that form of willow – uh, is also known as swamp willow, and it is particularly good for doing bent willow furniture. You've seen the chairs with the big uh, bent backs yeah. and all that. Well, that is the willow that is, is is perfect for that, and it grows wild. I mean, you can make a career out of a 10-acre plot of that willow, and you could it grows back. I mean, it's the ultimately sustainable. You cut it. Two years later, it's grown back into exactly the size twigs that you want. Sounds like the so, bamboo I used to have on a, on a house I had down in Albuquerque. That, exactly that kind of thing, except this stuff bends very well. And then, of course, we have hardwoods here. So if you have uh, hardwood frames that you can get from maple or oak, cherry, and then this fantastic bendable willow, you can create anything. Tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Ron... Rademacher, and we're going to be talking about citizen archaeology and a mystery in North America that transcends, shall we say, the Native Americans who were living here at the time and really crosses time and space and oceans and a bunch of paradigms. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
I want to uh, talk a bit about hope for some people tonight that we need to keep in our thoughts and prayers and hope for a better world that we can actually help them achieve. I'm talking, of course, about the people in the Bahamas. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, uh, that's our homepage, and click on that banner which says at the top, Save Lives, Pure Water for the Bahamas. We have been introduced to a technology. It's a filtering technology in uh, uh, a certain kind of non-allergenic plastic form. Um, you buy one of these bottles with a filter. It will replace something like 500 ordinary bottles of, of uh, mineral water, whatever, the kind that they've been shipping to these disaster sites, you know, on pallets and letting sit outside in the sun. And obviously they're not in non-allergenic pl plastic, so the water is ruined. And thousands of tons of water that was supposed to reach the victims of Hurricane Marie sat there and, and rotted in the sun. The same thing's been happening in the Bahamas. If tonight you want to do something to inject meaningful change into a whole group of people's lives, 60 to 100,000 people on those two northern Bahama islands tonight, just go to that site, click on that banner, and then scroll down below the Yes, I Want to Help button, and there's a video that was shot right after the um, uh, Dorian disaster. I saw a video a couple days ago nothing has changed it is like living in an apocalypse it is like living in you know the land of the lord of the flies it's living in conditions that you tonight listening to my voice cannot imagine you sustaining 24 hours 36 hours two months five months you know a year five years it's it's impossible they've, they've been trying to bring water in from desalinization I think the U.S. Navy has brought a couple of ships and anchored them, you know, in the northern ports there, and they desalinize seawater to provide water for the inhabitants on the islands, but it's costing $7 per gallon to produce one gallon of fresh water from the surrounding seawater. This technology, which we are privy to, which you can buy by clicking on that button, as many of these bottles of water, life-saving water, and send to the Bahamas as you can afford tonight. And yes, it's tax deductible, because it's a nonprofit association that we're in league with, which is doing this. There is no quicker, more effective way in this season to transform someone's life than to give them the gift of life, which is pure, 99.99% pure water. And the bottle and the system is recyclable, and all you do is change the filter after the equivalent of about 500 ordinary plastic water bottles. And the bottles that they're in, the actual water bottles that you're sending, they will last essentially forever. And they will reach how many people? A thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. So do whatever you can, open your heart, and make a difference in someone's life tonight. Thank <laughs> you. 
the other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Photo episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. For this Sunday night, February 16th, my guest this morning is Ron Rademacher, who is a generalist who's had a remarkable career. I mean, I could spend a whole show talking about, you know, how he worked with beautiful models and creating uh, apparel for women to wear. Having lived with a beautiful woman who loved to shop, who shopped very, very, very inexpensively, but got amazing things. That could be an entire show, but that'll be for another time. So, Ron, um, let me ask you, you were, you were doing this furniture thing, and you're wandering around in this big truck, and you're visiting fairs and all that. When did the idea dawn on you that there was a lot of Michigan on these back roads that was worthy of attention that no one was aware of, and that you might fill, as Sagan once said to me, an ecological niche by providing exactly that kind of guidance. Well, to tell you the truth, it was someone else's idea. Oh. Uh, a foot, uh, as so many of the great things that have happened to me turned out to be somebody else's idea, and they slammed me in the ribs and said, hey, uh, <laughs> you should be doing that. Uh, a friend of mine, Helga, was on a trip with me several times on these. And, of course, we did back roads because the truck was old and beat up, and I couldn't hit 55 miles an hour. And so <laughs> but but in a way, roads. that was the perfect vehicle because if you're selling rustic stuff, to come with a, with a vehicle that's rustic, kind of it's, it, 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 it's not glaringly contraindicated. It's kind of all part of the same meme. All exactly all part of the same picture, and when that thing came smoking into town, they said, "Yep, here comes that furniture guy." And so, but we would go to all these out of the way places, and she said several times, "She said, you know, I didn't know that was there, ah. or look at that architecture on that building. What in the world?" And so, you know, we were making notes and things, and she said, "You're a writer. You should be writing all this down." Ah. Well, the, as luck would have it. I decided to build a website so that I could create a catalog for my furniture because I couldn't keep printing them. So I got a copy of front page and learned how to uh, build websites. And I built Michigan back roads and up North Michigan and Michigan back roads. I started using all these pictures of these odd things and unusual, you know, just things that you never heard about. And just kind of like local color to flesh out the background of the furniture. Exactly. And places that, you know, towns that no one had ever heard of. At least I had never heard of them. Give us some examples, you know. uh, Let's see. Well, there is, uh, 
you know, there's, I'll just give you an example that's still there. You can go find it for yourself. It's no one else knows about this. There's a little town called Matherton, uh, which is up near uh, St. John's. It's out by Fowler. And on this piece of property is a tower that's three stories tall made entirely of bottles. What? What? Yes. No, but I don't know who built it. It's on private property. You can drive right up to it. So that was one of the things that we saw. And it, oh, and I'm not sure this one is there anymore, but uh, early on in my career, I happened to go through the town of Edmore, and the guy who ran the old Fence Rider Museum uh, had a whole thing on outhouses. Uh-oh. Don't ask me why the guy <laughs> had a whole thing on outhouses. But he put forth a proposition that there used to be such a thing as two-story outhouses what uh, i grew never. up on a farm with with outdoor me plumbing, too right? me too I, yes, for seven yes. years you know i had to fight the rooster in the winter to get the warm spot mm. yeah my problem uh, was the spiders i did not like the oh, spiders no, the spiders yes. are no, no they're no good so uh and and this thing actually did exist i took a picture of it uh there was a two-story privy that was that served a uh a state-run kids school and the reason it was a two-story privy is because they had to keep – in those days, they kept children separated by gender. Oh. We only had the two genders then, so it was a lot easier. You didn't have to have five-story privies. Just two. <laughs> and they didn't have enough room to build it alongside as opposed to – you know, I'm not sure, but the way that it worked is the, the – the, if it was boys on the ground floor, they could just walk out and use the ground level. The people on the second level would walk out on a covered walkway that connected to the second level of privity and use it that way. And by this device, they didn't want to build them side by side, Richard, because part of the reason for doing it this way was to keep these kids from hooking up. Oh, I see. You know, I mean, we, we, you know, we, would, we were clever enough to figure out, well, there's a hay mile. We get some privacy there. We mm. get so. So part of the reason for the two-story privy was to keep the young people from foregathering for so various purposes. So it seems to me that there's a very logical segue into archaeology. When you're looking at these sites, it's like, who did this? Why did they do it? What was the culture? What was their reasoning? What were the problems? You know, like I, I, I know there's a glass bottle tower in Watts in L.A. that's very famous. You probably it's, it's got both glass and it's got you know welded iron and spirals and things that stick out. It's it's an incredible artistic creation, but a three-story glass bottle tower in the middle of nowhere in Michigan. Well, not only that, there is uh, probably our most famous and least known bottle structure in Michigan is the is the Bottle House in Calava, which is now the historical museum, and it was built by a man. There, in fact, he built several bottle structures uh to use up defective bottles from his bottling plant oh. and it's a it's a work of art there's there are uh the, the walls have uh patterns woven into them using different colored bottles and there's home sweet home uh, in the front woven out of bottles so <laughs> yeah uh, and well there was actually a practical uh side to this too the walls end up being 10 inches thick and you can't see the bottles on the inside. You can see them on the outside. But the insulating quality of the bottles is so good that the temperature difference inside to outside is 10 degrees. Well, each so one be, obviously is filled with air. It is filled with air. And the, yeah. the, the, the cross-connection bottle-to-bottle-to-bottle glass is a very low-heat conductor. So I can imagine it would be a good insulator. 
It is, and that's what uh, he, he discovered that by accident. And at the time, he had hundreds of thousands of defective bottles that he couldn't use, and he used 60,000 of them to build this house. My God. Talk about recycling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so you're you're wandering the back roads, obviously, with your significant other, and you're visiting little towns and fairs, and you, she gives you the idea, why don't you kind of write this stuff down? What was your first travel book like? What was in it? Well, the first travel book was Michigan Backroads 1, which has now been replaced just with uh, the book called Road Trips. And it was simply a collection of stories, all based on true things, to out-of-the-way places in Michigan where you could find something that was unusual, and they were just fun. Uh, in Michigan, the, the local tourism here in Michigan focuses on – Traverse City, Mackinac Island, Marquette, and Alpena. If you're not in one of those towns, maybe Saugatuck, no one ever hears about you on TV or on radio. Hmm. So my early on, my uh, intention, once I started doing this, was to not write about any place famous. Good so, the way that I would, so the way I would find my stuff is I would go to a town, 6.30 in the morning, walk into the coffee shop, and in the back would be a big round table with a bunch of old guys drinking coffee. Ah, wonderful. It's wonderful. in every town. Every town. And I would go back there it, and it, drive in, them. In New England, it literally was a cracker barrel and it was a stove. You know, it was Okay, exactly, exactly, and the pickle barrel there. and all the, Exactly. So, uh, so I would go back there and bribe these guys by paying for their coffee and as many donuts as they could put ah. away to tell me about local legend and tell me about the things that were lost, that were in the museum that no one remembered, that all those kinds of oh, things. Oh, how cool. And they would do so. Now, sometimes, I don't know about where you live, but here in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, we have what's called a snipe hunt. <laughs> where yeah. They, yeah, it's the snipe hunt, you know, where they send you off and you got to hold the bag yep. waiting for them to drive the snipe to you, hence left holding the bag. Uh-huh. Yes. So every now and then these guys, would send me on a snipe hunt just for the sheer joy of it. Uh, but for the most part, there would be a kernel of truth. And from a lot of those kinds of adventures, and I have a couple of very, very old Michigan history books, I've managed to track down dozens and dozens and dozens of unusual places, unusual businesses, uh, forgotten towns, Things as, as bizarre as uh, in, in St. Louis, Michigan, there was a, a spring that used to flow there that an entire economy was built around. The water that came out of the spring was magnetic. What? Uh, yeah, and you, would, you could stick a piece of metal into this water, and it would come out, and it would be a magnet. And they built up bathhouses, oh, and people would my. come for the magnetic water cure. And it, the whole town blew up in the middle of the lumber era way before. They had a railroad there and, and postal service seven days a week before Saginaw had a post office. Hmm. So you find these these stories. and is, is, is that place and the water still there? The town is still there. The wellhead is still there. Everything is, else is gone. It's, it's capped off. Nobody even in the town even remembers other than the historical society. I have a – there's a, uh, one of the stories in my, my first book, Michigan Backroads Road Trips, is about the uh, healing magnetic spring that was there. Uh, General Sherman from the Civil War actually traveled to St. Louis, Michigan to get the cure. That's how, how famous it was. Oh, my God. Well, why did they cap it off? I mean that's that's an amazing scientific thing. 
it, it uh, there, there you you know there you have it. Uh, you know that's where I where, what I do is I go find these things. I document that they actually existed because I don't write about anything I haven't put my own eyes on, and tell the story as best I can, and then I move on and leave the you know the why fours and the where fours and how come we're not doing this now to someone else. Hmm. But that must leave you with an awful lot of mysteries to keep you up at night. <laughs> well. Uh, uh, not exactly. It's very close. You're, you're surprisingly uh, intuitive. Uh, actually, it's what gets me up in the morning. Okay. I sleep the sleep of the innocent. But when I wake up, I am fully awake, ready to go, grab the next file, plan the next trip to go and find the next anomaly or the next bit of history well, that needs all right, to be right, told let, again. Let me stop you there. Can you get me a bottle of this damn water so I can have it tested? <laughs> I will. You know what? I'm going to write that down. I don't know why I can't. Uh, I know people in St. Louis. I'll call and ask them if I can get a bottle of that water. See, water is very. I mean, water is used in homeopathy, and I lived with a, you know, Chinese oh, yeah. homeopathist for 20 years. And there's a physics associated with water, and the ether, and all that. And I mean, this seems to me like it almost got closed down because somebody didn't want anybody to ask the question. How the hell is it quote magnetic? Uh, maybe uh, it would. It became so famous that many other surrounding towns began to drill wells looking for mineral water, and we had a number of towns in that part of that time all through southern Michigan right. that became known for their mineral baths. This was the only place it was known for its magnetic water. But I'll call them and ask them, you know, is, can I get a, a sample out of that well? Because I, I know exactly where the wellhead is. It's not been lost. Okay. Uh, and I don't, I just don't know that that water is used in. And I have anymore. the perfect lab to send it to. So. We'll see what we can do. I've written it down on my trusty, rusty <laughs> list of things here. Because no, that's no one's ever asked me that question before, and, and so yeah, I'll see what I can do about that. That's what we do around here. We ask questions nobody's think things to ask anyway um next question then how did you how did you segue from prowling the back roads and you got what six of these travel documentary books are they hard copy or are they only on the web or how do people get access to them oh no they're hard copy okay uh and uh they're available in gift shops and bookstores all over michigan how about the rest Uh, of the country well, no, they're not. I have not had any luck in marketing these books to the rest of the country for some reason. I don't sell them on Amazon because I'm in a, a feud with Amazon. They oh. don't want me to sell them the way I want to. But MichiganBackRows.com gets a lot of visitors, and you know, the, on the home page there is a picture of the six covers. Well, you know, and, with the coming election, Michigan is one of the three key states that Trump has to win to stay in office. So Michigan's getting a lot of attention nationally. Hint, hint. Yes, well, uh, yes. Uh, and as it turns out, the Steve Gruber show that I am on on every Wednesday is uh, conservative talk. Ah. And they have me, and he he's was at the, he was at the prayer breakfast Friday. He's interviewed Trump in the White House. Uh, so there'll be a lot of visibility there. And I'm on there every Wednesday for what they call uh, comic relief, where hmm. we don't talk about politics in my my 10-minute segment. We talk about the road trip of the week, uh, right. what's going on here, what's going on there. And he's always very good about letting people know, hey, if you want to know more about this stuff, excellent, excellent. 
Go to michiganbackrows.com, click on the books, got a great price there. Go through Shopify, everything works like, you know, like, uh, like clockwork. Well, the obvious next question is, did you ever think of doing this for the rest of the country? Because I can tell you, Robin and I found extraordinary places that no one had ever heard of just prowling around here in New Mexico. I have uh, thought about that. I've been asked that question because I have, when you delve into the body of work that I have, I have more information about the little known parts of Michigan than anybody in the world. And, uh, and I've been asked, you know, why aren't you doing Wisconsin? Why aren't you doing Pennsylvania? Cause I've been to all these States. Mm. I will never finish Michigan. Well, that's, I will, true. that's I, I will, true. I will never finish Michigan. And so I've made the, the, the decision to continue to improve what I have here and broaden it uh, and, and not dilute my efforts. Because now between uh, the writing, I put, do about 30 public appearances uh, every year I'm on radio every week. If I try to do another state, I honestly fear that I'm going to dilute things and not do the job that should be done. Hmm. Okay. So the next question is, uh, by the way, this reminds me of Charles Carroll. Remember who Charles Carroll was? On the road. On the road. I worked with him at CBS. You lucky dog. I was really lucky. But he was he had this incredible curiosity and he had a camper and a camera crew. And of course CBS sent him out to do this kind of thing nationally, but he only could touch not even scratch the surface. Because if you're still working on one state and you've been doing this for what, ten, fifteen years? Almost twenty. Oh my God. Then can you imagine what else there is to be found in the other lower 48? Well, I can because, you know, when I traveled uh, the United States, I traveled all but four of the states. And I always made it a point that if I had to be in an area for a couple of uh, a day or two, I would make it a point to do the research and go and visit the local museum, go and visit mm-hmm. the local out of the way attractions. And, you know, I mean, I've always had this interest. So uh, there, there are great treasures out there. I hope somebody picks up the kind of work that I do and applies it to other states because places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, out west, Arizona, New Mexico, they're full, full well, have of you these thought, great old history. Have you thought, given the incredible social media networks we now have, of opening a school for guides, for travelers, for seekers through the web, through the internet, through Skype, whatever – and getting other people in other places like here in New Mexico um, to, to, to carry on this. Because to me, this is part of rescuing who we really are. I agree with that. And, and you, you know, I can hardly believe I'm about to say this, but I never had that thought. What? It never, it never occurred to me to open a school. Uh, but that is an idea worth pursuing. Oh, because... we've got cameras. We've got, you know, go video. We've got every way to document all this cool stuff. And we've got the network to connect it all. And you're the guy that's written literally the books. Well, then you and I should uh, talk about this sometime. Maybe you could help me put that school together because I believe that with the right playbook, because a lot of people don't know how to go about it. They look at the body exactly. of work that I have there. Yes, and there's yes. overwhelm. Uh, and if I give them my formula, which I'm perfectly willing to do, this is how you do this, and but you're going to have to persevere. It's not going to happen overnight because it takes a lot of travel and a lot of work. But if you do it right, I mean, I have got files and files and files that need to go online and into new books that I just simply have not gotten to yet. 
See, Robin and I met around. That's a good idea. It's a good idea, Richard. I'm going to think about that. Thank you, Ron. Uh, Robin and I met around rescuing a place in Miami that I bet you never heard of called the Miami Circle, which was this excavation in the ground. The developer wanted to put up a big apartment complex, and when they had the bulldozers in, they ran across something that kind of looked like an American Stonehenge. With oh, really? Or ordinary uh, geometric blocks aligned up and all this stuff. And yeah. they were just going to bulldoze it and, and destroy it. And I wound up flying to Miami and getting on local media. And people Good started, for you. People started, you know, uh, uh, parading and demonstrating. And I got my friend Art Bell with his national radio thing involved. We wound up saving a crucial part of ancient American history in a town, Miami, that doesn't care about anything that's three days old. So one could see getting a flotilla of people around the country rescuing things like Indian mounds. I was on a plane once several years ago, and the guy was into that, and he said, you know, it's a shame they're just being bulldozed left and right. They're being destroyed, and they're a critical part of this ancient, ancient North American culture we're going to talk about momentarily. And there's nobody, you know, championing their preservation. So – if you got people interested at the local level, I mean, local television is always looking for interesting stories. They're desperate, and the, a lot of it is really horrible stuff, you know, like who shot whom, who left somebody buried out in the desert here. I mean, it's really very, very negative because they got nothing else to fill the time. If you could fill it with history, with heritage, with who we are, and the incredible creative, creative creativity of Americans to do things that other people around the planet don't seem to do. I mean, I can see how you could have a whole burgeoning, uh, you know, discussion around preserving who we are. I, I agree a hundred percent. In fact, uh, uh, Indian burial mounds are a particular uh, interest of mine. In fact, we're going to get into this canoe later on. There's a Hopewell uh, fortification on an Island in a lake mm. in Western, in Western, uh, Western upper peninsula. But, let me say this about what you just said because what you just said is very uh, is brilliant. I have all of the material and the ambition. I've never known who to contact. I mean, every now and then a, a radio station will call me and say, "Hey, we heard you on Gruber. Could you do a couple of things for us?" Uh, but I've never. I don't. I do not know how to approach whoever I need to approach to put together a project like this. But I can produce the content in my sleep. Because I've been doing it for 20 years, and I've got I have pictures, as you've seen, I have high res pictures, uh, you know, and and I have uh, the knowledge. So I would love to do something like that. I just maybe uh, we can talk about that sometime. Seriously, I'm not just saying that because I don't know what the next steps are to take or who to call. Well, the next step would be the people listening to the show tonight here in the United States. You know, go to to Ron's website, look where it says contact. Send him a note if you're interested in this so he can start compiling a list of potential guides. You know, we could call them, you know, away team members, something really kind of interesting and a little different. And then we have an international audience. Can you imagine people in Taiwan or in China or in in Australia getting the same idea? And remember, they can connect to you now anywhere in the world just like that. Just like that. Yeah, it's a great idea. Great idea. And uh, your your idea, too, about doing uh, local shorts on television and or radio is great. We have a, a – there's a PBS program called Under the Radar, which is very popular here in Michigan. Uh, and people ask me all the time, well, how come he's not 
having you on his program. And my response always is, I don't know. The guy never responds to me. So, you know, there's a, obviously there's steps you have to take because the media is bombarded with stuff that's just no, of no interest to anybody. Mm. Uh, and they can't, you know, they can't deliver for more than one or two shows. So a lot of the problem from this end where Ron sits is that Ron doesn't know exactly what steps to take to contact those people. Maybe you can help me with that. Okay. Well, I know in Miami, you know, we were there a couple of days and then suddenly in front of the site, you know, with the bulldozers and the, you know, chain link fence and all that, there were, there were wall to wall satellite trucks lined up all along one side of those fences and the major media market, Miami, United States was broadcasting every news night, the next steps in preserving this piece of culture in a town that had no interest in anything three days old. Yeah, yeah. Well, Miami hasn't got a whole lot of. You said Miami. Yeah, Miami. Yeah, yeah. They don't have any interest in uh, in what happened 50 years ago, let alone 2000. This was back. Absolutely. The, the dating now is maybe this stuff is 10,000 years old. Amazing. Right? As part of the Amazing. whole Bimini thing, and yeah. the ruins yeah. off Cuba and all that. And there's a huge yeah. flourishing civilization, and this little thing on land on off Brickell Avenue. You know, Robin and I basically saved it with the help of a few of her friends there in Miami. Well, I hope they name a street after you because that's <laughs> tremendous work. Well, all right. We, we're, <laughs> we're basically here at the top of the hour. It's amazing how time flies when I get into interesting discussions. So why don't we kind of you know, cool it for a moment here? My guest this morning is Ron Rademacher. We're about to get into something really interesting, which is ancient archaeology in North America really ancient archaeology that may not be from North America. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because... Without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.